Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 28th day of September, 2007. Today I would like my listeners to cast their minds back to those weeks of hysteria following the September 11th, 2001 attacks. Terrorism and terror scares obviously dominated the media at that time, But it may have escaped your memory exactly what terror scare was dominating the media headlines in the weeks and months following the September 11th attacks. Perhaps this clip of news media from that time period will help refresh your memory. Anthrax. Anthrax in the mail. Anthrax through the mail. Anthrax tainted letters. Anthrax tainted letters. Anthrax laced letters. Anthrax laced letters. Anthrax letters. Anthrax letters. Anthrax letters. Anthrax letters. Presence of anthrax. No presence of anthrax. Positive for anthrax. Negative for anthrax. Negative for anthrax. Positive for anthrax. Also has anthrax. But not anthrax. I don't have anthrax. He does not have anthrax. No anthrax. Crop dusted uh, Omaha with anthrax. Mass spreading of anthrax. Mute anthrax deadly anthrax kill any anthrax anthrax fighting drug antibiotics 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 anthrax vaccine as i'm sure that clip amply demonstrates the anthrax attacks were the key concern of a terrified public in those trying weeks following the horrific events of 9/11 let's refresh our memory about those anthrax attacks Beginning on September 18, 2001, several letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to various media outlets and also to two senators, Senator Patrick Leahy and Senator Tom Daschle. Five people were killed as a result of these anthrax-tainted letters and 17 others were infected. The investigations spawned by the attacks were the largest investigation in FBI history with investigators chasing leads across six continents and questioning over 9,000 people with regards to these attacks. And what has the FBI learned so far about this terrible anthrax attack? Well, they're not telling you. This report comes from ABC News from December 12, 2006, and it's entitled Congress Demands Answers on Anthrax. It reads in part, quote, 33 members of Congress are demanding that the FBI provide an update on their investigation of the anthrax attacks that killed two U.S. postal workers from suburban Maryland and shut down the Hart Senate office building for several months more than five years ago. The bipartisan letter is signed by both Democrats and Republicans from the House and Senate. The FBI has been investigating the incident since the first anthrax-tainted letters were discovered in October of 2001, but no one has ever been charged. The FBI has refused to tell members of Congress about the probe, citing concerns about possible leaks. End quote. The letter cited in that article was just one instance of members of Congress demanding to be updated on the anthrax investigation and being refused. More examples of that abound, but one example would be from Representative Rush Holt, representing the 12th District of New Jersey, where the anthrax letters were mailed from. And on his website, there is a press release entitled Answers Needed on Stalled Anthrax Investigation, 
which details his request to the chairman of the House of Representatives committees with oversight responsibility to conduct hearings on the FBI's investigation and failure to indict a single person on charges related to these crimes. It is indeed true that the FBI has specifically said they will no longer update Congress about this investigation. That comes from an MSNBC news report from October 24, 2006, entitled Congress, FBI Battle Over Anthrax Investigation. The article states in part, quote, Meanwhile, in an unusual move, the FBI's top lobbyist has informed members of Congress that the Bureau will no longer brief them on the case. The FBI's Assistant Director for Congressional Affairs wrote, After sensitive information about the investigation citing congressional sources was reported in the media, the Department of Justice and the FBI agree that no additional briefings to Congress would be provided. End quote. And Senator Patrick Leahy, who, as you'll recall, was one of the intended victims of the anthrax letter mailers, recently gave an interview to a blog entitled The Vermont Daily Briefing, in which he discussed the anthrax investigation. Here is a transcript of that exchange between the Vermont Daily Briefing and Leahy. Vermont Daily Briefing. I don't think there's any other way to look at it, and when you call it what it is, it was biological warfare conducted against the highest levels of the U.S. government. Leahy. What I want to know, I have a theory, but what I want to know is why me? Why Tom Daschle? Why Tom Brokaw? Vermont Daily Briefing. Right. That all fits into the profile of a kind of hardcore and obviously insane ideologue on the far right. Somebody who would fixate on especially Tom Daschle, who at that point was the target of daily vitriolic attacks on right-wing talk radio. Leahy. I don't think it's somebody insane. I'd accept everything else you said, but I don't think it's somebody insane. And I think there are people within our government, certainly from the source of it, who know where it came from. And these people may not have had anything to do with it, but they certainly know where it came from. So here we have a respected senior senator basically admitting that he believes the FBI is actually covering up the identity of the person or persons who actually committed the attack. Many startling facts have come out of the FBI investigation and propagated through the mainstream media, perhaps none so startling as the following two findings. One, the finding that was backed up in an issue of Science in 2003 by Gary Matsumoto, entitled Anthrax Powder, State of the Art? Question mark, which came to the conclusion that the anthrax powder used in the 2001 attacks could not have been made by any amateur playing at bioterror in a primitive laboratory. The article concludes, quote, Spetzel's main point, however, is that only a state-run facility or a corporation has the resources to make an anthrax powder as good as the one mailed to the Senate. The amateur anthrax scenario appears to have lost credibility with the failure of the FBI's attempt to reverse-engineer a high-quality powder using basic equipment. If the Army couldn't do it in a top-notch laboratory staffed by scientists trained to make anthrax powders, skeptics ask, who could do it in a gr- garage or a basement? This would seem to point towards a state sponsor for these anthrax attacks. The question is, which state could have pulled it off? Well, that leads to the second amazing thing to come out of the FBI investigation, and that is that the strain of the anthrax used in the attacks has been identified through DNA sequencing as the same strain as the Ames strain. 
This was a strain of anthrax isolated by U.S. Army medical researchers and first researched at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institution of Infectious Diseases, also known as U.S. AMRID, at Fort Detrick, Maryland. The Ames strain, as it's known, was then distributed to at least 15 bioresearch labs within the U.S. and six locations overseas. Putting these two facts together, it seems that indeed there was a state sponsor of the anthrax attacks, and it was indeed someone within the U.S. government. Wittingly or not, the U.S. government helped to perpetrate the attacks against itself. And perhaps as a diversionary measure to this astounding revelation, the FBI did come along in time in 2002 to identify someone as a, quote, person of interest, end quote, in these attacks. Not, of course, someone who could be treated as a suspect, or someone who could, in fact, even be subpoenaed to appear in a court, but someone they were interested in researching. Of course, it didn't take long for those in the controlled corporate media, headed by government chills like Brian Ross of ABC News, to identify this man, Dr. Stephen Hatfield, and to thoroughly denigrate him in the public media before he had even been brought before a court of law. For an example of this, we turn now to The Charlie Rose Show. The Charlie Rose Show is a talk show which airs on PBS. And we're going to listen to a clip from August 12, 2002, in which Brian Ross tells a little bit more about Stephen Hatfield and the FBI investigation. You know this guy. You've interviewed this guy. Talked to him. Before. Uh, we've talked to him over the last three or four months, long before his name was made public. We were aware that his name had been given to the FBI by a number of his former colleagues at Fort Detrick, which is the U.S. Uh, Bioweapons Defense Center. Uh, they were aware of Hatfield, and they didn't like him there. He was fired in 1999 for violating uh, lab procedures, and then he got a job with the government contractor and lost that security clearance for that job. August 23rd of 2001, just about a month before the anthrax went in the mail. So so that, that started the suspicion that this was a person who might have a motive. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad yeah. at the government. He doesn't think that the yeah, American he, this public... This was sent to Senate offices and sent to news offices and everything else. I mean, right. why is he mad at those people? Well, he was mad at... Yeah, assuming, uh, why would anybody <clears throat> be mad at those people? Because sure. it's a disparate group. Sure. Right. He, um, it tracks, actually, uh, interestingly enough, uh, a novel that he's been writing. About? Uh, an about anthrax? an anthrax, a biological weapons attack on the U.S. Congress. He has been saying for years that the U.S. government is unprepared and they have failed to focus. They've, he's been criticizing them for failing to focus on anthrax, instead focusing more on AIDS. And that's a waste of resources. He was uh, a medical student in uh, what is now called Zimbabwe in Rhodesia. Uh, was a kind of what people there say was a wannabe, was trying to associate himself with the right-wing white militia. It was at a time when there were anthrax attacks against black farmers in Rhodesia. Uh, he lived near a town by the name of uh, Greendale, and one of the things that has intrigued the FBI is that the Greendale Elementary School was the fictitious return address on the letters sent to the two senators in Washington. There are probably 10, 12 other reasons that Hatfield's name became very prominent uh, on the FBI's list of 20 or 30, as they call them, people of interest. Ever since Richard Jewell 
you know, from they, Atlanta. They don't like to call anybody a suspect. Okay. But so, so I guess all the earmarks are what normally would be considered a suspect, but they don't call him a suspect. Okay. Have they, in, have they done searches of his house? They've searched his house three times. Once, they did a kind of a quick look-see. Second time, they had a search warrant but didn't have to use it. He agreed to do it. And then the third time, they had a search warrant and went in uh, without telling him in advance they were coming. Uh, he is said to have boasted to some of his uh, friends that uh, the FBI missed something on the first time around. Well, that kind of thing gets back to the FBI. Others say the man's got a sense of humor. That's the kind of thing he would say. Yeah. Right after the anthrax attacks, he was telling people, anyone who comes around me better be taking their Cipro. Now, it's sort of like telling one of those jokes about bombs at the uh, airport security check-in. Uh, you know, it may just be a joke, but again and again, they've said that Hatfield has been the master of the inappropriate uh, comment. On top of that, his, one of his closest friends is a man by the name of William Patrick. And Bill Patrick is perhaps the only person in this country who knows how to make anthrax of the quality found in the two letters sent to the United States Senate. Have they, um, they obviously have talked to Patrick. They've talked to him. They've talked to Patrick. They've given Patrick a lie detector test, and they've looked at his house. They've found no evidence there. And Patrick is quite a strong defender of, of Dr. Hatfield. Very, very, uh, likes him a lot. Why has it taken so long in this investigation? This is the first time, for me at least, I have read about somebody. What's the phrase they use? Of interest? Person of interest. Person of interest in terms of the focus on an individual. It's been, what did I say, almost a year? Why? Well, the first uh, death was October 4th. Uh, mm -hmm. There were initially um, investigations of a number of Pakistanis who lived in the Trenton, New Jersey area, which where the anthrax was mailed. Uh, one woman saw a Pakistani who was arrested for immigration violations, she said, with envelopes in a plastic bag. And there was a great deal of interest then right away. That came and went. What they found was that the anthrax, by tracking it back, is so close to what the U.S. has made that it almost certainly had to be Domestic. a U.S. product. Right. <clears throat> then, well, who has the ability to make that? Very few people. One person. Right. One person, maybe, <clears throat> could make it. Yeah. It had to be in a very sophisticated laboratory that this person doesn't have, this Mr. Patrick. He taught others, with the help of Hatfield, how to make it out of Dugway, Utah. With the help of Hatfield, he taught others. Hatfield was his close associate, a number of enterprises. They would do things, for instance, to see if someone could buy machinery on the open market and make anthrax with it. Could they make it in this country? Could terrorists? They would test the market. Uh, Hatfield was involved in having Patrick write a report on essentially what they call a blueprint, how to put anthrax in the mail. How many grams? What quality? What would be the effect? Uh, there are a lot of reasons that uh, Hatfield keeps coming up. And most recently, they've used a new technology they took a kind of dust buster, it's fancier than that, on the anthrax letters to suck out the scent of the letter sent to Senator Leahy, which was hardly handled at all. They took that scent, put it on a sterile gauze pad, and they gave it to a specially trained bloodhound. They took the bloodhound out to Frederick, Maryland. They followed uh, Hatfield to a restaurant. He left the restaurant. They sent the dog in, and it alerted where he had been sitting. Went right to where he was sitting. Then they took it to his apartment and to the apartment of his girlfriend, and again the dog went, as they say, nuts. Now, that's not enough to justify an arrest warrant, but in the view of the FBI agents, uh, it's more than enough to be overlooked. They cannot overlook it. They just can't. His lawyer said yesterday that when I first heard this, I thought, how could it be? And then he convinced himself that his guy, his friend, Hatfield, was not capable of doing this. 
Right. Well, and there is no evidence against Hatfield or really against anybody. The anthrax well, letters... Well, the story you just told me suggests to me that a certain call it suspicion. It wouldn't, uh, there's a great deal of suspicion about Hatfield, a yeah. great deal of suspicion. And that, is anyone else even close in terms of what the FBI thinks that is a not that I know person of, of interest? Not that I know of. I've known of other scientists whose homes have been searched, who have given polygraph tests, who have been questioned closely, uh, some in New Jersey, around the Trenton area, and um, nothing's come up, and they've been able to clear him. But I was told by the FBI officials today that there simply is not enough at this time to clear Hatfield. And they are unimpressed, they say, by his news conference denials, which they say are efforts to deflect the investigation. And one of them said he'd like to be Richard Jewell. He'd like to be able to say, look what they did to me. Yeah. You just said the FBI says there's not enough to clear him. That's right. I assume also there's not enough to That's arrest right. him. They're in a purgatory. Yeah. At the first floor, I can't get to the second floor. No fingerprints, nothing. Just They're, the sniff <clears throat> is the only thing. And just the scent, circumstantial evidence scent. of... Right. Of Hatfield being Hatfield in all these places. Being close to somebody who knows how to make it. If that doesn't convict him, it doesn't mean uh, anything other than it's circumstantial. They are pretty convinced that it was made domestically in the United States. That's their belief. Now, Hatfield, who was speaking to us quite a bit before our first story went on the air, and then he stopped talking to us. But prior to that... He was telling us this has to be Iraq. In fact, he was being trained as a weapons inspector to go to Iraq. Well, Iraq is known to have a lot of anthrax. Yes, and uh, thought to have had a very sophisticated uh, weapons production program. But the belief is that this anthrax that was used in this country, especially the letter Senator Daschle's and uh, letter Leahy's offices, was of such high quality that really nobody could have made that other than this top-line U.S. production. Now, help me with this aspect. It is the stuff that was sent to Tom Brokaw's office and to Dan Rather's office, the same that was sent to Leahy no. and a different kind. A less good quality, kind of a common... So what does that say, a copycat or something else? No, they believe it's the same person based on the writing and the sort of the way it was sent and the, what was in the envelopes. Um, they can't quite figure that out. Was it somebody who was experimenting making it or was it somebody who swiped it from a government lab and one day could get this stuff, another day got the really good stuff? They're not quite sure about that. When was the last anthrax sent? Well, the last anthrax was sent uh, October 4th, and that's when the letters went to uh, Daschle and Leahy. But interestingly, another letter was sent to Senator Daschle November 15th from London. It was an anthrax hoax, hoax with mm -hmm. a powder that was harmless. That happens to be the same day Dr. Hatfell was in London attending a conference. And, and, and what does that say? Well, they're very interested in that because the handwriting and the message inside that November 15th letter, very similar. So the hoax letter... W w might be connected. Might be connected because the handwriting was similar even right. though it was a harmless powder right. that was not right. anthrax. The FBI theory all along has been, or at least they came to this theory, that this was a government scientist or a former government scientist who was trying to send a message to alert the country. This could be a super patriot uh. who feels the U.S. must wake up and become aware that the bioweapons defense is important because Congress had been cutting back the budget, cutting back the money for the vaccine. Okay, it should be said, as you would obviously say, that many people could fit that profile. Oh, yes. But clearly Hatfield does. That He's one of the people. He fits that profile. Is it fair to characterize the FBI, fair to characterize the FBI as believing that we're not, we don't have enough evidence to, to move against him, but we have more circumstantial stuff about him than anyone else, which may suggest 
how weak their case is that's right. on anthrax more than anything else. That's right. Not how strong it is about Hatfield. That's right. I think that's very true, Charlie, what you say. And I think it's likely you never, never, may never have a resolution to this. There may never be enough evidence to take anybody to court and put them on trial. There was certainly a masterly amount of spin going on in that conversation, and it would be worthwhile to take a look at some of that spin before moving on. But for instance, you'll notice that when Charlie Rose asked why anyone would be angry at such a disparate group as Tom Brokaw and Senators Daschle and Leahy, Brian Ross responds, not with an answer, but by saying it all, quote, tracks back to a a novel that Dr. Hatfield had been working on, and then stops at that point, making it sound rather ominous. When prompted for more information, Brian Ross reveals that the novel that Dr. Hatfield has been working on is about an anthrax attack, and then he corrects himself by saying a bioweapons attack on Washington. Well, if you go and research about this novel at all, you'll find out that it in fact has absolutely nothing to do with anthrax, nothing to do with letters being sent through the mail. It's about a Palestinian terrorist funded by Iraq releasing a bubonic plague agent in the White House. And in fact has very little bearing on the case whatsoever. But Brian Ross, in the way he presents that information, makes it sound much more ominous than it really is. You'll also notice that he talks about the uh, bloodhounds, for example, going, quote, as they say, nuts, end quote, when they gave the bloodhounds a scent and then uh, let them loose in Dr. Hatfield's house, neglecting to note that uh, the dogs had also gone nuts, as they say, in other locations uh, with other persons of interest, not just Dr. Hatfield. What it looks like here is a coordinated attempt to paint and tar and feather Dr. Hatfield without ever having to actually arrest him or indict him or bring him before a court of law. And this uh, meshes quite well with my analysis of Brian Ross that, in fact, he, uh, of course, pretends to be a reporter reporting on the FBI and the CIA, but is obviously part of Operation Mockingbird. He's a plant within the system a reporter who is in fact not reporting on the intelligence agencies, but working for them to disseminate key stories at opportune times. And uh, please, by all means, keep an eye on his blotter column in on ABC News, which is featured quite prominently on the ABC News homepage, uh, which from time to time will break uh, key stories for the U.S. intelligence agencies, seemingly at uh, the time when it will do maximal good for those agencies. And you'll notice even in that Charlie Rose clip how when Brian Ross is referring to the FBI investigation, he'll use the third person and say they are thinking this or they are doing that, but giving quite detailed information. And uh, it really sounds like you could replace that third person with a first person quite easily. But I digress, and I just uh, once again point you to Operation Mockingbird, and I suggest you check out what that is before you dismiss such claims. But then the question comes back to why would they want to frame or set up this Dr. Hatfield as the Lee Harvey Oswald lone nut of this terror scare? What purpose does it serve? And more importantly, maybe whose purpose does it serve? Well, one suggestion was brought up by Brian Ross, which seems to be uh, fairly reasonable, that those who stand to gain the most in terms of profit from these attacks are the very agencies which are designed to protect against the attacks. This, of course, is a fairly basic point, but let's illustrate it with an example. Let's listen to a video clip that came out on a news program shortly after the anthrax attacks, detailing a new technology which had been developed and marketed in the wake of those attacks, 
to various governmental agencies to help identify dangerous compounds such as anthrax and the millions and billions of dollars which are being made by such companies in the wake of these attacks. Let's listen to that audio clip. Stepping into the hot zone, these are the first responders called in an emergency to investigate what could potentially be a biological weapon, chemical agent, or even a dirty bomb. A tool out there now is making their job a little easier, the community less vulnerable. It's called COBRA, the Chemical Biological Response Aid. It gives the responder on scene step by step. What does the first law enforcement guy have to do? What does the second law enforcement guy have to do? Don Ponikvar leads the Alexandria-based group that developed a system for emergency crews to help in a disaster more quickly and effectively. Say victims are salivating, have a runny nose or nausea. COBRA quickly provides a possible answer. The most probable class of agent that might be causing it is some type of a nerve agent. But for years, getting the product on the market was an uphill battle. Then came 9-11 and the anthrax scares showed that what we had been saying all along wasn't so far-fetched. Here in what's called the War Room, Brad Gardner directs development of the system, compiling all the information a responder needs to do his job. You really speed up the time uh, it takes to get into that hot zone and rescue somebody or start taking corrective action. COBRA was used in the Hart Senate office building, during the Olympics in Salt Lake, and now the FBI bomb squad and every major law enforcement agency has it. What makes it even more useful? Meant for emergencies, it's also meant to take a beating. Even survive a decontamination process. The tool that we've provided to a number of first response organizations uh, injects sanity into that confusion. And the people who make COBRA are constantly adding new information so that emergency responders have a new tool to develop for each, uh, each different kind of emergency. The COBRA team just joined forces with uh, students at the University of Virginia to develop software so they can deal with radiological weapons or dirty bombs. Tracy? All right, Laura. COBRA, by the way, is being used in Baghdad right now as crews search for chemical weapons there. Each computer and response kit cost $14,000. And for those of you who missed it, let's listen to the key part of that clip one more time. But for years, getting the product on the market was an uphill battle. Then came 9-11 and the anthrax scares. It showed that what we had been saying all along wasn't so far-fetched. What? You mean to tell me that you believe that the people who would actually stand to gain the most from these attacks would actually carry out the attacks in order to profit from them? Well, if you believe that, you must be a crazy, kooky conspiracy theorist like Colin Powell, the former Secretary of State in the Bush administration. Colin Powell recently gave an interview to GQ magazine in which he warned of the creation of a terror industrial complex. This phrase, of course, harkens back to Dwight D. Eisenhower, who gave his final presidential address in 1961 warning of the creation of a military industrial complex. This coming just a couple of years before JFK had his head blown off in public and America found itself bogged down in Vietnam for a decade. Because of the Gulf of Tonkin event, which recently declassified audio tapes have uh, confirmed suspicions long held that, in fact, the, the entire event was staged as an excuse for America to go to war in Vietnam. Colin Powell was recently cornered behind an event and asked to comment a little bit further for some citizen journalists, and the results are up on YouTube. Let's listen to a clip from that interview in which Colin Powell explains a little bit more about the creation of the terror industrial complex. 
Again, in a GQ interview with Walter Isaacson, you said we have to beware creating a terror industrial complex. What would a terror industrial complex look like, and are we headed in that direction? Well, I think we have to be aware of it. We're spending an enormous amount of money on uh, homeland security, and I think we should spend whatever it takes. But I think we have to be careful that we don't get so caught up in trying to throw money at the terrorists and counter-terrorist problem that we're essentially creating an industry that will only exist as long as you keep the ther terrorist threat pumped up. And so that's, uh, that was the, the context of uh, that comment. And I, and I feel strongly about it, just as many years ago, General Eisenhower warned about a military industrial complex. Uh, I just wanted to make the point, defend ourselves, screen ourselves, do everything we can to go after terrorists and defeat terrorism, because it is a threat, it is an enemy. But let's keep it in perspective, let's keep it in context, because the United States has many needs. We have uh, needs to deal with uh, the poverty of some of our people, uh, education, uh, the environment, lots of things America needs to do, and we have to make sure we only spend that which is absolutely essential on our military, on our police forces, and on our terrorist activities. Right, and then the second part of that was, again, um, do you see warning signs that we're heading in that direction, or is this just a general warning? No, I think we spent a lot of money, and uh, you've noticed in press releases recently, or some commentary recently, we spent a lot of money to put a lot of equipment out there, counterterrorism equipment, but now we need more money to keep that equipment running. Well, let's make sure that what we have sent out there is absolutely essential. And uh, let's be cautious in our appropriations and in spending money. I don't think we're out of control. I think we had to respond in an aggressive way. But it's now been six years. Let's make sure that we are spending money on the right things and not spending money just to spend money. The implication is clear. As Mr. Powell points out, the trough has been created for a terror industrial complex to grow and thrive in the heart of Washington's culture. And as we know from the military-industrial complex, this type of complex does not die an easy death. It relies on fear and terror scaremongering to keep the public in check and to keep the paychecks rolling in. And one can only imagine that this is only a harbinger of the creation of the global war on terror, which will last generations, or so the real terrorists in our own government tell us. It still becomes the concern of all researchers, then, to find names and to find people who could be implicated in this type of scaremongering and who might be implicated in attacks like the anthrax attacks of 2001. While it goes beyond the limited resources of our open source investigation to be pointing fingers or naming names, there are some names which are just too colorful to ignore and which raise an eyebrow. For example, Jerome Hauer. Jerome Hauer received a master's degree in emergency medical services from the John Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health, and since 1993 has worked for companies like IBM, as well as SAIC, the Science Applications International Corporation, the National Institute for Health, the Office of Emergency Management in New York. He's been an advisor to the United States Marine Corps and United States Capitol Police, the Chemical Biological Incident Response Force, and he's a member of the John Hopkins Working Group on Civilian Biodefense and an advisor to the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs. Obviously, Jerome Hauer is a mover and shaker, and perhaps most interestingly, he has served as a managing director of Kroll Associates. 
Kroll Associates being the official security and bodyguard company for all American presidents since World War II, and of course the security company operating security for the Sears Tower. Jerome Hauer has a Stephen Hatfield connection. On May 28, 1998, both Hatfield and Hauer spoke at the same CFR meeting, one that was held about building a biobomb terrorist challenge. Hauer later went on record with sources that were investigating Hatfield after he had been outed by the likes of Brian Ross, saying that he thought that Hauer had gone too far in his speech, giving too much information to would-be terrorists by telling them exactly the weaknesses in U.S. defense. So he was part of the attempt to smear Stephen Hatfield in the media without bringing Mr. Hatfield into a court of law. Hauer has a keen sense, one would say almost prescient sense, of coming terrorist attacks. In the 1990s, when he worked for the New York Office of Emergency Management, he instituted a campaign to develop a vaccine against the West Nile virus, which just happened to show up in New York the very next year. He also displayed such prescience on September 11, 2001, in his role as National Security Advisor for the National Institute of Health. In that role, he advised the White House to go on Cipro, the anti-anthrax drug, on the morning of September 11th. This information was classified for a long time, but was finally broken by the Associated Press. It seems Mr. Hauer knew something that no other Americans did on that morning. The Hauer 9-11 connections don't stop there. Hauer was also the man responsible for getting John O'Neill his job as head of security for the World Trade Center on the week of September 10, 2001. John O'Neill, of course, was the man who headed up FBI's counterterrorism in the 1990s and was tasked with finding and tracking down bin Laden in the U.S. He was the one in the FBI who knew more about bin Laden than anyone else, and after quitting the FBI in disgust because of Executive Order 1999-WR213589, Hauer helped get him that job at World Trade Center as head of security. His first day, September 11th. He died when the buildings collapsed. Mr. Hauer was an extremely busy man on 9-11, not only advising the White House about the coming anthrax attack, which of course hadn't taken place yet, but also appearing on CBS News to talk with host Dan Rather. Let's see what Dan Rather and Jerome Hauer were talking about on the morning of 9-11. You served as the commissioner for Mayor Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management. Based on what you know, and I recognize we're dealing with so few facts, is it possible that just a plane crash could have collapsed these buildings, or would it have required the sort of prior positioning of other explosives in the building. What do you think? No, I, I, my sense is that uh, just one, the velocity of the plane and the fact that there were, you have a plane filled with fuel hitting that building uh, that burned, um, the, the velocity of the plane uh, certainly uh, had an impact on the structure itself. And then the fact that it burned and you had that intense heat uh, probably weakened the structure as well. Uh, and I think it, uh, it was uh, simply the, uh, the planes hitting the buildings and, and causing the collapse. What perspective can you give us? I mean, there have been these repeated reports that, well, yes, Osama bin Laden, but some think he's been overemphasized as, as 
responsible for these kinds of events. I know many intelligence uh, people at very high levels who say, listen, you can't have these kinds of attacks without having some state, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Syria, somebody involved. Put that into perspective for yeah, us. Well, I, I'm not sure I agree uh, that um, uh, this is necessarily state-sponsored. Um, it, as I mentioned earlier, certainly has um, the um, uh, fingerprints of somebody like bin Laden. So there you go, emergency preparedness expert Jerome Hauer advising Dan Rather on CBS News on 9-11 that, uh, no, they couldn't have possibly have been explosives that brought down the Twin Towers. It must have been the force of the plane and the burning of those intense fires. And uh, yes, of course it was bin Laden. It couldn't have been any state actor, and it wouldn't be worth investigating any leads in that realm, because of course it must have been bin Laden. Of course, Mr. Hauer might have turned to his friend John O'Neill for some advice about that, given that O'Neill was America's foremost expert on bin Laden. But he had consigned his friend to certain death in the World Trade Center towers just the day before by appointing him as the head of World Trade Center security. All of this may seem tangential to the anthrax investigation question, but it's very central, I assure you, especially considering that once again, Jerome Hauer advised the White House to go on Cipro on the morning of 9-11. Jerome Hauer knew things that other people did not, and he shared that information with the White House. Oh, and one other tidbit about Mr. Hauer. You, of course, remember World Trade Center Building 7, the 47-story office tower, not hit by any plane which spontaneously collapsed into its own footprint at freefall gravitational speed in under six seconds on 9-11? Yeah, well, Mr. Hauer was, of course, working in the Office of Emergency Management in New York in the 1990s and helped with the construction of that building, whose tenants, as you'll recall, include the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, etc. The point is that the anthrax investigation has been swept under the rug and taken out of the public spotlight. The largest FBI investigation in the history of the FBI has failed to bring forth even a single suspect or charge a single person in connection with these crimes. And now even Senator Patrick Leahy believes that the government knows who perpetrated the attacks but is actually covering up for that person or persons. As in all criminal investigations, the question is key bono. And we must start to follow these threads and get pressure on the mainstream media to start covering this as well. Not just corporate media hacks like Brian Ross, but those in the system who actually know what they're doing and aren't working for the intelligence agencies themselves. Oh, and one other fact of some relevance. Senators Leahy and Daschle, the ones to whom the anthrax letters were addressed, just happened to be two of the most outspoken critics of the Patriot Act, which was rushed through the House without members even being a chance to read the act before it was brought into power. The Patriot Act, of course, has been the beginning of the dismantling of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and it was passed during the terror hysteria of September, October, November 2001, and in light of the anthrax attacks. Now, who would benefit the most from getting that Patriot Act passed, and what would they do to ensure it's brought into law? That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, inviting you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. Vision, dreams of passion. And all the while I think of you. A very strange reaction. The more I see, the more I do. 
baby. Highway, tell all your friends they can go my way. Pay your toll, sell your soul. Pound for pound, cost more than gold. The longer you stay, the more you pay. My white lines go a long way, either up your nose or through your vein. With nothing to gain except killing your brain. 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 Brain.